0: Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Akira, the iconic dystopian anime film directed by Katsuhiro Otomo, adapted from his manga by the same title. Released in 1988, this film envisions Tokyo in the year 2019. Neo-Tokyo is now a cyberpunk landscape, rife with petty crime and social unrest, The story brings together a teenage biker gang and a secret government experiment that gives children telekinetic powers. Often listed as one of the greatest animated films ever made, Akira played a pivotal role in popularizing anime in the West. Yeah, really excited to discuss this film, which Morgan was watching for the first time and I was watching for the second. It's just a tremendous film. I'm sure this is completely uncontroversial opinion among all of our listeners who are aware of Akira.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was really interesting to watch it for the first time. Because obviously I knew of this movie. It's very famous. And the image from the poster. Which is of one of the main characters. Who wears a very like iconic red outfit. And his bike. like That image was very familiar to me. But I realized as soon as I started watching it. That I did not actually know basically anything. About the plot of this movie. Beyond the fact that there were bikes in it. So. <laughs> uh, it was a really fascinating viewing experience. Because... For the first half or so, I really did not know what was going on, although it was still enjoyable. And then the second half, I got really into it, even though I still wasn't totally sure what was happening, which I think is fine. The movie's great regardless. But as you say, this is like an extremely famous and storied movie. So there's a lot of information about the history of it being made and the sort of development of the film, which started out as a manga that was written by... The director Katsuhiro Otomo. And you know more about that than me, as evidenced by the extremely comprehensive document that you put together as a planning <laughs> tool for this episode. So why don't you sort of lead us in with some information about that?
0: Yeah, so Katsuhiro Otomo started working in the 70s, and he had worked on some anime sort of on other people's movies before directing this, but prior to Akira, he was very much known as a writer and artist. Akira was written between 1982 and 1990 and before that he was known for writing this really critically acclaimed sci-fi comic called Domu and part of the reason why Akira was such a big deal is because you know he was a first-time director and this was at this point the most expensive anime movie ever made. It had a budget that was sort of now estimated between eight and ten million dollars at the time in Japanese money um, and it was famously extremely complicated to make They put together this big squad of financiers to get it to happen who were known as like the Akira Committee and they had a massive staff of people working on this who we'll discuss in a moment. But um, as an artist, Kazuhiro Otomo um, was very directly influenced by a lot of Western pop culture as well as obviously kind of the manga community that he was embedded in which I think is kind of part of the reason why this movie was like such a huge success internationally it's like obviously the quality of the film is incredibly high but it's one of these pieces of pop culture that shows like cross-pollination between different audiences that kind of allows people from different places to like understand art more comprehensively in a mainstream sense which happens you know every every couple of decades but like just watching this movie you can see like a bunch of other stuff that you'll probably recognize thematically from other films in the 1980s so there's like clearly there's a ton of Blade Runner going on in there which itself was like very heavily influenced by Japanese and Hong Kong imagery kind of in real life in the 80s. Um, and all this kind of Western paranoia about Asia taking over, just a lot of weird shit going on there. But yeah, like the kind of post-apocalyptic and dystopian urban imagery was so rife at this point. You had movies like The Warriors, Mad Max, with all this biker gang stuff that came from the 60s and 70s. And like Otomo, when he was a young man, was watching a lot of these movies. So that was kind of the origins of like where he was coming from as an artist. And the original manga he was working on was colossal. It's like a 2000 page book, but I kind of get the impression that he views the movie as like the ultimate version of this. Like, even though it's not as expansive, it's like, this is the way that you can depict a city of this size on screen. And uh, Morgan found this quote from him, at the time he said it's extremely difficult to express the depth of such a vast city in the comic I use each issue to build more depth and size but in a film you get to combine this all into one it's much more convincing I could really create the kind of environment that I wanted to depict and that's really the impression you get from watching this movie like it just has such an amazing complexity of the setting and it's like we have seen a million movies that are about like a gritty urban environment but I think this really speaks to the fact that it is like a really auteur-driven movie. You've got this one guy who's got a very specific vision and he knows what the city's meant to look like and what different elements of it are meant to represent. And that just makes it feel incredibly fleshed out. And that's kind of one of the, the main things that's really com- like complimented about this film. And it's borne out on the fact that they had kind of different levels of art going on at all times. So you had like background, middle and foreground. And apparently there was like, twice as many animation cells as in another film of this type, so everything looks like much smoother. They had like individually painted light sources. There's a bunch of kind of technical reasons why this film looks incredibly good, but um it very much comes out, especially if you watch it on the big screen.
1: Yeah, I think the articles were saying that like even the Studio Ghibli movies of this time had like half the cells per second as this. And those are obviously incredibly high quality of beautiful movies. But this is
0: like the same year when Uh, My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies came out. So it was like a big film, a big year for the Japanese film industry.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know when I watched the movie a couple of days ago that it had sort of had this origin as a manga because I don't usually do much research before watching the movie, right? So I went in pretty cold. And it made a ton of sense to me when I then looked it up after the fact that this was the case because as I mentioned I definitely felt kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on here for a lot of the movie. Sometimes in ways that did feel a little bit destabilizing and a lot of the time in ways where I wasn't bothered. I was just like, there's clearly like some, some kind of plot going on that like, I don't know all the details and that's fine. And it really makes sense to me that there is this other version of this story that is like thousands of pages long with all of this detail that like you're not fully getting in the filmed version although as you say i think he says in one or two of the interviews that like he kind of always had it in his mind as a film and that he was kind of working toward that end goal a lot of the world building you know both in terms of the visual stuff which you're talking about but also in terms of the like power structures of like the government of the city and like who is in charge of what specific kind like part of the story that you're watching are not fully explained in a way that I think can sometimes be a bit confusing and that in other ways is kind of a positive because he just like doesn't bother with overly expository scenes or dialogue because in his head obviously all of this makes sense because he spent so much time developing it and so you really have the feeling that like there is this fully fleshed out world even if it doesn't always totally make sense especially I suspect on a first watch I'm sure if I watch this again there would be stuff that I sort of picked up on.
0: Yeah, I can't remember because like I saw it the first time like 10 years ago and I can't remember whether I found it conf- confusing or not. Like I do remember kind of being surprised because I didn't know much about it. But I do think it's kind of interesting that like the structure of the story is pretty atypical for like a big mainstream adventure story. But like it's this great combination of a lot of kind of familiar styles of imagery and tropes. Like the main characters are like a teenage biker gang and you've got government conspiracies. And a lot of the political themes, which we will talk about in a minute, are sort of familiar and we can understand what's going on. And also this is playing to an audience of people, many of whom will be like familiar with other kind of 1980s dystopian cyberpunk fiction. But at the same time, like the way the story unfolds is really interesting. So you kind of have that mix of something that feels like it's comfortable and easy to comprehend. And then it's this almost kind of, anthropological depiction of the city as this big like organism because the way they kind of introduce you to the film is like obviously it does kind of have a antagonist protagonist sort of situation because the two main characters are Canada and his friend Tetsuo who are both these like teenage bikers and then you have kind of all these adults who have like more serious struggles that they are like more purposeful about but the story kind of begins with them just like racing around the city and They get into a crash and this leads to like Tetsuo being sent off, like taken off to this laboratory where he's experimented upon and gets telekinetic powers. And it's because they kind of encounter these other people in the city. There's like another child who's escaped from this lab and there's kind of multiple interconnected storylines. Like the other main one is there's this kind of small terrorist group who are rebelling against what is very clearly kind of a corrupt fascist government and then you kind of see, like, the people who are more conscious of the politics of their city. Like, as the, epi- as the kind of movie progresses, there's, you know, riots on the streets and people protesting and stuff. But the main characters are people who are not remotely politically switched on and are quite stupid. Like, pretty much all of the main characters in this movie are quite stupid. And in the case of the teenage boys, like, very naive and self-absorbed and, like, not really emotionally in control. But the film does a really good job of kind of illustrating why they're in that position, because they're kind of in this society where they've been completely abandoned and everything is just really poorly run and violent.
1: Well, I think the storytelling is pretty unpsychological in a lot of ways. As you say, there are these two protagonists, but there's not as much, or like protagonist and antagonist rather, but there's not as much of a traditional story arc structure as you would see in a lot of action type movies, which, like, in theory, this kind of is because you do have these big set pieces. But both the story structure doesn't really conform to a lot of tropes that I'm familiar with, which I thought was really interesting. While a lot of the scenes are pretty short, so it'll kind of like skip between characters without having the story moving forward based on these like big emotional moments, right? with like someone being motivated to do something because another thing has happened. It's more impressionistic without being totally experimental. Obviously it is still using these, you know, familiar tropes as you're saying of chases and action stuff and science fiction, but also the characters, like their motivations for doing things. You can sense what's going on in like a broader societal way. Like all the themes and allegories are pretty clear, but like, you don't really understand until pretty late in the movie like why these people are friends or where their relationship even comes from and like i could not have told you anything about like canada as like a person really until the end and even then it's pretty symbolic and like that's just not the focus of the film right it's more about creating these moments of sensation in the audience i think as a result of the experience you have watching the movie because of the images and I think the strongest element of the movie are these moments which we'll talk more in detail about as we continue but where like just surreal and kind of viscerally upsetting or horrifying imagery happens that is kind of dreamlike that is not connected to like plot right I mean like maybe there's a something that happened that caused something that is to do with the plot but like it's really more about you having that just like pure effective experience as the viewer, which reminded me a lot. I think this there's a lot connected with this film to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he mentioned in an interview about like that that was an influence on one of the earlier projects he worked on. But I was like, haha, yes, <laughs> at least this was like in your brain somewhere, because there's especially near the end, there is a lot of imagery that's very similar 2001 and that also has like there's a plot in that and it's a science fiction movie but by the time you get to the end of that movie it's so all about just like very upsetting images on the screen and you being like ah like what's going on in a kind of instinctive way which is a lot of what I really value about like
0: yeah extremely impactful and visceral I mean I do think that while the film kind of doesn't really introduce the main characters in a way that kind of explains them I think that the initial introduction of those teenagers is just so well done. Like they're so kind of expressive and you immediately get a really good idea of where they are in the world because there's some elements of them where it's like the whole like focus of classic biker gang movies is like look at how cool these people are and there's always kind of an element of tragedy and like youth cut short and that sort of thing. But with these characters, you have like Canada has this absolutely iconic red outfit and incredibly cool bike and there's this amazingly animated bike chase kind of fight sequence in the first quarter of the film but kind of as soon as you see them like just behaving in like a normal sort of social interaction they're all like really immature there's this scene where they all kind of get arrested (laughs) and they're just acting like a bunch of dorks and um and when you see them kind of go to school you do get a really solid impression of kind of what society is like and why they're like this because it's an environment where none of them really have a home to go to. Like you don't really see where they live because they're all living in some sort of group home. And there was no kind of safe place for people to socialize, which felt like very kind of familiar in the modern sense. Like teenagers don't ever have anywhere to go. And like nowadays, they're all just like staying at home on the internet. But at this point, it's like they're just loitering around outdoors. And of course, they're doing like a bunch of petty crime and going around in their motorbikes because that's like the only thing they have an offer. And the police are just a bunch of incredibly stupid, like fascist thugs. And it was just like, yeah, great. I I love this depiction. I felt like it was in a lot of ways, like a lot more kind of complex than a lot of the other dystopian kind of 1980s urban films I've seen, which are mostly very much just geared towards the aesthetic.
1: I mean, that's not a genre of movie that I've seen very many of. Yeah, I've I've seen like 50 of them. (laughs) I've seen Blade Runner, of course. But I still think what you're saying is kind of in line with what I'm saying, which is that like the social conception of, the world these people are living in is very strong, and you get a sense of them as a group in a very strong way. But, like, especially for the first half of the movie, what is the difference between those two boys, except that one of them gets taken off to the lab, in terms of, like, personality? I don't think you really know. Yeah, it's not, like,
0: character arc-driven.
1: Yeah, which I think is okay. I do think it... I was also kind of distracted while watching this movie the other night, so, again, especially for the first half, I was sort of like, what is happening? But I think it's also just a case of, like, storytelling priorities, right? And, like, the priorities of this movie are not to tell, like, profound internal psychological narratives. Like, that's not what this movie is doing at all. It's way more about the larger allegorical stuff and conveying this sense of emotion by the image, as I was saying, which you don't need to have as much internal information about the characters for that. But I think it took me a little while to kind of get used to what the movie was doing because there wasn't like a character to latch on to, right? To like be like, oh, this is like the way in to the movie. Uh-huh.
0: Whereas I'm like, what a cool bike. <laughs> 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 yeah, like before we kind of move on to there's a lot of kind of interesting, juicy themes to discuss here. Um, there's just a couple of other things I wanna talk about for the making of situation so obviously the animation in this film is extraordinarily high quality and there's a very clear kind of aesthetic which was uh, masterminded by Otomo but there's kind of two elements which are quite unusual for this film which is the dialogue was pre-recorded rather than having voice actors speak over opening and closing mouths which is how the majority of animation works and also kind of something similar happened with the music. So the music was recorded first. And the music in this film is like famously iconic, which is not coincidentally an element of like many iconic movies. Like music is extremely crucial to the success of really big films. Surprise, surprise. Um, but what happened is like, because Otomo had so much creative control, he could have whoever he wanted. And that's part of the reason why this film has such an unusual score because he really liked the music of Geno Yamashiro Gumi, which is not really a band. It's more like a music collective. They're this kind of think tank that was led by a composer named Shoji Yamashiro, who also is a science professor. um, And he also composes music on the side with this like big group of academics and musicians and experimental artists. And they kind of in the mid 80s had released this, I guess you'd describe it as like a prog rock album but it kind of combined elements of Indonesian gamelan music and techno. And Atomo had heard this music and was like, great, do that. And his only guidelines when composing the soundtrack for this film was that he wanted two themes, which were he described as festival and requiem. And the result is this absolutely like eardrum obliterating score, which kind of combines gamelan, as I said, so a lot of sort of percussive music, which is just gorgeous and this very kind of ominous Christian choral organ noises. But it's stunning, like it opens with this like big roll of thunder, there's all this like chanting, it's just a really, really great album. And I was kind of reading this review of like a re-release uh that came out a couple of years ago, and there's just this quote saying like, in the 26 page liner notes, composer Yamashiro goes on at length describing the neurological studies he conducted, to prove that the sound at 48 kilohertz level could elicit more vivid psychological and physiological responses in a listener. This is known as the hypersonic effect. I would personally describe it as pseudoscience, but like it's, it's just something I love. That's the energy that this musical collective was bringing to the background of this film. And if you listen to this the album, it's like a very three-dimensional album that you can feel like all the way around your skull. Great music in this film.
1: <laughs> well, one of the interviews that I read with Atomo, he said that, he like had to like track down this guy because he was just like a teacher who yeah, like, also had done this music. He like was a like a molecular I, biologist. <laughs> I managed to find him and like he was really busy teaching. So he was like, I just need you to do two pieces of music, which is the festival, of the Requiem thing that he told him. And then as soon as he'd gotten him to do that, he was like, but could you maybe just keep going <laughs> and like, do the rest of it? Which is how this winds up happening, which I thought was quite funny. There was also an interview I read with one of the animators who was like a very young woman at the time named Kuni Tomita. Who I imagine there cannot have been very many female animators working at this project. I I
0: think there are, I mean, I think one of the top animators was a woman who like animated a lot of the Studio Ghibli movies. So I think there were definitely like a few. I think there probably were more than working in like Disney. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I would still, I mean, I do not have the statistics, but still has to be a minority. But what was interesting was that I had been reading this document you put together and you were like, oh, all these amazing animators worked on this, which is true. And they had all of this money. And then I read this interview with this woman and she was like, yeah, I was very young. Like I just graduated from school and was like trying to get my start and was working for this, you know, company and had been working on various films, including like a Winnie the Pooh anime." And they were like, "Do you want to work on Akira?" And she was like, "No, because they they have no money, so like they can't pay me." Because there was just so much work that even though the budget was very high, like the people making it were really not making very much, and that basically wound up doing it because. It was such a fulfilling creative project because the artistry was just like so high. Although there's a quote from her where she says that like, yeah, it was great to work on. I was really proud of my work, and then I watched the movie. It was like I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so like, <laughs> clearly there was some confusion at the time as well. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was reflective of you know the animation industry today as well, right? That like, yeah, there's it's just always the situation
0: where it's like whether you're doing kind of hand drawn work or like CG stuff. Either way, it's kind of an art form where you need to have 500 worker bees kind of plugging away for a lot of these really big projects. There's often a lot of workers' rights issues going on with that.
1: <laughs> well, especially given the number of animated cells per yeah. second, which we were mentioning earlier, right? Like It's just like a massive amount. Of work the vibe from that interview with her is definitely that I mean there were a lot of people working on it but you get the sense of kind of a little bit of like scrappy vibe just sort of like plugging away out of love for the director and the project as opposed to it being this like massive behemoth of a project financially but uh yeah we'll link to that interview obviously I thought it was was very interesting and you know <laughs> all the interviews with Otomo are pretty fascinating like he's just seems like quite a character as I mean it's also like one of
0: these situations where I mean this was relatively early in his career it wasn't like his first project or whatever he'd been working for well over a decade at this point but I mean he's currently in his mid-60s he's still making films he's directed animated and live-action films and continued to draw but it's one of these situations where like what is it like as an artist and a person to create something which is one of the most iconic films of your country and one of the most iconic animated films of all time you've had this huge impact on pop culture like that's gonna require some therapy because like (laughs) how do you I mean he hasn't like ever made anything as, as big as that but that's also like a really difficult and bad way to view anyone's art
1: well, there's a quote from him where he says, when I saw the first rush of the movie version of Akira, I thought it would be a failure. I left the theater very quickly and came back home to tell my wife that the movie was a failure. This was because I thought the first half was good, but because the time and budget was limited with so many cuts, the quality dropped as the story developed. In general, I thought the picture quality and cut quality went down when the movie went into the latter half. So when I saw the movie's quality decline as I watched it, it made me feel miserable. And there's some more like technical detail that." I won't read, but I
0: mean, I think he was like an obsessive detail freak in terms of like policing his animators. I mean, like, it doesn't look bad.
1: <laughs> everything we've already said, clearly that is true. Yes, and then I guess he says something about a remake with audio. I suspect he means they remastered the remastered audio or something. Yeah, yeah, but he gets invited over to see the, I think, restored version of the movie. And this is, like, a couple of years ago. And he says, this was a very long time since I had seen the movie back when it was released. Maybe time had made me softer, but when I saw it again, I thought, oh, this is interesting. And maybe it wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> it's like, I yes. Artists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's totally typical and also normal. That, like, after that much time spent, like, obsessively working on something that you should have no perspective anymore. But I love the idea of, like, decades later, rewatching that and being like, you know what? This movie's... Pretty good.
0: It's sort of like Turner lurking around the art galleries, like repainting his famous paintings.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um shall we talk a bit in a bit more depth about the plot? Yeah. Many of our listeners will have seen the film, but um yeah, do you want to kind of give a bit more elaboration on what happened or shall I?
1: Uh why don't you do that? Because I still am not 100 okay. percent clear on all <laughs> of the details. So
0: In terms of characters. There's these kind of roughly three groups, which is the biker gang, which is led by the protagonist, Canada and his friend Tetsuo, who has kind of a contentious relationship with him, because like is kind of the alpha, and Tetsuo is kind of not the alpha and feels quite neurotic about it. When Tetsuo was taken to this lab, we learned more about these children, like much younger looking children, who were experimented upon, and they kind of look really strange. They look like little elderly people who are also children and they kind of behave like children and kind of look like they've been irradiated because there's a lot of nuclear themes in this film. The word Akira like comes up all the way through. Akira is referred to as a person but we don't see them for most of the film and kind of about halfway through it kind of becomes clear that Akira was one of these children that had telekinetic powers And this child was responsible for this massive explosion kind of 30, 40 years ago. And so like that's kind of part of the background of the story. And Canada is like trying to find out where his friend is in hospital and like around them the city is basically catching fire because you've got this small rebel group who are trying to break into the lab and... When we meet them, like they're represented by Kay, who's this teenage girl that Canada is like incompetently trying to flirt with, which is very funny because like she's clearly quite serious and thoughtful and mature and is having none of it, and he's just like a hound. <laughs> um, but um, she and her pals are like trying to break into this lab for their political reasons. But like we learn that the person they're kind of answering to is clearly corrupt. So they're these people who have good intentions but are working for just like another terrible leader. And then on the macro scale, there's these huge riots breaking out in the city for very obvious reasons because like the police are really violent. It all feels very familiar. Like you see the police kind of like brutalizing people and using water cannons and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of economic inequality and the city's really run down. So that's kind of the background. And you also see some government officials who are like in charge of the lab. So there's this one guy who's, he's kind of authoritarian, but he's also the father figure to these kids. And all of these things come together In the final act, obviously, where all of these riots really break free and Tetsuo starts to get extremely powerful in terms of his telekinetic abilities. But he doesn't have any kind of plan because he's just an emotionally volatile, lonely, bitter teenager. And this was kind of the point of the movie where I was like, oh, this really reminds me strongly of the movie Chronicle. And I looked up and Chronicle was indeed one of the many films which was influenced by this. But um, it's kind of referencing superhero films because he's this teenage boy. And like as soon as he gets superpowers, he makes a cape for himself. And at the same time, there's a bunch of people in Neo-Tokyo who worship Akira as a god and think that he's like the new incarnation of Akira which in a way he is because he has the power to like clearly do some really destructive things to the city. But the final act is him going to where Akira is like buried in this cryogenic storage facility underneath the half built 2020 Tokyo Olympics uh, arena. (laughs) And then meanwhile the rest of the city is in total chaos and there's this really artistically experimental showdown at the end where like part of it is this very simple story about disaffected teenagers because like Tetsuo just wants to show off that he's really powerful and he's constantly jealous of Canada who is trying to save him but also isn't particularly emotionally intelligent so he's just like haha, you might have to save you and Tetsuo is like masculinity is wounded because he wants to show off how powerful he is and kind of the final act is him mutating and exploding into this like horrifying being and the other two or three children who are kind of the surviving experiments use their power to sort of make a new dimension and put him in it (laughs) and that's the the finale and the finale is very strange but at the same time once you get to that point it was really making me think of a lot of stuff that I would see when reading late 80s vertigo comics So, that's clearly something that was very present in the Western comics that I was reading as well. Like, Vertigo was the DC Comics imprint that you'd get stuff like Sandman and the Invisibles in. And there was a lot of um, chaotic alternate universe, like dimension jumping stuff going on there as well.
1: Well, also, one of the things I was reading was pointing out that, like, part of the ability for this film to cross over into America and then other countries as well is the connection to Western science fiction, as you were mentioning. But specifically, the quote is, like, beings with paranormal powers, which was a popular theme in American comics and science fiction at the time. And specifically, obviously, like, (laughs) X-Men. Which, this movie is nothing like X-Men, but it's hard not to be like, oh, yeah, that's, like, a very big trope at that time and still now, the idea of these, like, I mean, we talked about the recent anime film Promare, which is the same kind of idea, right? Of like young people with these special powers, and there's also a social element. And I think this movie is doing so much other kind of strange, interesting artistic stuff, but by having the sort of central conceit be this idea that's quite familiar to many different kinds of audiences, it makes it more easily digestible, right?
0: I mean, it's definitely interesting to see there's like a gajillion things that are influenced by this, but it's one of those really obvious things like Star Wars where people have like copied this and then they'll like then restructure all the ideas they've liked around a really conventional, boring hero's journey arc, which is kind of not the point of this. It's kind of the same way in which a lot of uh, artists, a lot of storytellers would be influenced by like Cowboy Bebop, which is another iconic anime franchise. And the reason why that show is amazing is because it had incredibly deep world building like this and it's like it's not just like cowboys in space in the same way that this is functionally not about a superhero origin story like that is like 10% of the story
1: (laughs) no I mean and like the as I said the plot arc is not easily consumable or describable in the terms of like traditional like western storytelling mechanics but the image of like a teenager with these sort of like overwhelming powers that he can't control is potent. And there's a reason that yes. that gets repeated over and over again, right? Because it's tied into the feeling of adolescence, which is that you just have so many feelings and like you don't know what to do. I mean,
0: the original manga for this was basically published in a magazine for teenagers.
1: Yeah, and it makes sense, right? And like the central allegory of this movie is not about like adolescence or like developing adolescent sexuality but that's obviously always a component of this kind of thing right and i think what's particularly interesting and kind of compelling about this version of this kind of story is that pretty rapidly that central character tetsuo is not really recognizable as, like, a familiar teen archetype, right? Because the power that is in him is so overwhelming that there's just, like, he feels pretty inhuman in a lot of pretty disturbing ways, but never completely inhuman, right? Like, there's always a little bit of something that's still a teenage boy in there, and especially at the very end of the movie where it's really the power is sort of overwhelming him, he reverts back totally to being just like a scared child, which is upsetting.
0: I mean, it's very much kind of in the zone of like incel, school shooter, masculinity issues, but it's also like kind of about mutation. I mean, what what did you think of all the nuclear stuff in this?
1: (laughs) Well, I was thinking definitely more about that than about like toxic masculinity. I mean, that's obviously a definitely part of the movie, but it felt so kind of, I don't know, elemental and sort of abstract and like working on dream logic that I wasn't thinking so much about. Almost things like as mundane as like, you know, gender issues and like the problems with, you know, teenage boys. And there was one thing I was reading, I can't remember which piece, but again, we'll link to everything. was talking about the idea, I mean, again, this is obviously all about kind of the nuclear age, and that part of what the movie is dealing with which i think is really interesting is not just the like horrific destruction of the bomb although that is part of it for sure and of like the horrifying effects of radiation which is also part of what's going on with him dealing with these kind of like his body sort of mutating outside of his control but the idea that there's something seductive and beautiful about like nuclear power and nuclear destruction which is part of the whole pathology of the 20th century, right? That these bombs go off in Japan and it's like, the actual fact of that is like indescribably horrible. But then so much of the subsequent decades of sort of geopolitical maneuvering and just like stress of everyone sort of losing their minds is the idea of this sort of power that had never existed before. And that is seductive to people, even if the actual reality of it is just like terrifying. Like, people are attracted to things that scare them, right? And so you have this main character who doesn't really know what's happened to him, and he's also afraid of the fact that he's got this power, but he takes pleasure in just, like, destroying things because he can and he's not really thinking about it. And there is also something pleasurable about watching the destruction, even as it's also alarming and upsetting, because obviously it's not real, so we're just sort of watching from a distance But it forces you to kind of think about all of this stuff together and then at the end pushes further into this zone of like, oh no, this is just really, this is just really horrifying and bad when his body just like explodes into this monstrous form, right? But I think pushing toward that sense of like, there is something kind of seductive about this, even if it, you know, obviously it's the thesis of the movie is that it's bad, I think is pretty bold and interesting and not something that most art is sort of willing to do, right? Because the kids, the kids who won't sort of go there are these like sh- little shriveled old like dolls, which yeah, also doesn't who are, like, seem appealing. Really physically
0: infirm and harmed. Yeah. This film just has like amazingly creepy and compelling depictions of power and kind of nuclear imagery, particularly when you kind of get into the final act and you've got Tetsuo kind of mutating into this giant tumor, which reminded me actually quite a lot of the film Paprika by Satoshi Kon, who was, I think he worked for Otomo for a while, which makes sense, but it's kind of this weird dream imagery, which I think you enjoyed quite a lot.
1: Yeah, I was definitely enjoying this movie. And then that last segment pushed me over the edge to being like, oh no, this is... Great, this like extremely fucked up film. Yeah, um, there is one sequence earlier, or a couple of sequences, much shorter sequences earlier, that kind of the teddy bear. Yeah, and (laughs) so Tetsuo starts having these kind of like hallucinations before the stuff at the end, which is more like physically actually happening. But when he he sort of breaks out of the like facility that he's being kept in where the lab is and finds his friends again. And they're having some kind of fight. And then he starts having like, he starts like clutching his head and he's having these visions. And I can't remember what the first thing he sees is, but then he has this vision of all of his organs just like falling out of his body. And it's really fast, but I was like, Oh, that's disturbing. And I don't like it, but I would like to see more. And then you get the, like, when he's back in the facility a little bit later in the movie, he has this dream sequence slash hallucinatory episode where all of these objects in his room, they, like, start out as stuffed animals, and then I think other stuff sort of, like, compounds in with the stuffed animals. At first, they're, like, walking around, and then they kind of, like, get bigger and bigger, like, amassed together, all this stuff, in a way that's just, like, very ominous. Yeah. and. I don't remember what even really happens in the rest of that scene it's it's more just like, it just like sense just like him. oh
0: <laughs> yeah I mean it's kind of like all the component parts there are cells yeah and there's quite a lot of kind of cell imagery tying in with the nuclear mutation stuff cuz like the first shot of the film or one of the first shots is this overhead View of kind of what starts out looking like it's maybe a heart with a bunch of veins coming out of it, and then it kind of coalesces and you realize that it's not blood cells or whatever it's an overhead view of Tokyo, and then part of the way through, there's this conversation where the female character Kay sort of talks about the idea of what if an amoeba with all of like an amoeba's desires and drives suddenly had the power of a god and kind of comparing that to the power of Akira. And, like, in the final act, when they go to visit Akira, you find out that he's been sort of stripped down to his component parts, and there's just a bunch of bits of skin and stuff in jars, which is very disturbing, so there's a lot of kind of understanding of the atomic level of being like a biological organism, and like the city as an organism, and then putting together all these component parts to make a monster in a way that really kind of ties together without trying to explain anything,
1: yeah, and I think the like Lack of explainability is part of what makes those sequences so disturbing. Like, on the one hand, you can say, like, well, clearly, again, there's stuff going on with biology and then, like, nuclear power and destruction that's this big picture allegories for this. But there's just something really, like, essentially disturbing and unsettling about those sequences that can't really be reduced to, like a equals b right and especially at the end when they, they keep the, the like scientists people keep saying like at some point his power tetsuo's power will be like too much for him to control which is what winds up happening in the olympic stadium at the end and his body just gets like well at first he's got like a sort of metal arm that he's like attached in place of where he, he his arm gets like blown off in a fight And then that sort of starts growing and then his actual flesh gets bigger and bigger. And at one point he becomes this like enormous sort of grotesque baby, which is one of the things that reminded me of 2001, which of course has a large baby at the end. But the feeling of just like his emotions being kind of like overwhelming and uncontrollable and sort of manifesting in this physical form but he's saying to Kaneda, like, help me get out of here, and it just kind of can't happen. And at the same time, this is when the component parts of Akira sort of transform into this godly being who looks like a perfect, you know perfect young man, and meanwhile Tetsuo is this like grotesque huge thing is just like ugh, it's very unsettling to watch in a way that sort of defies straight explanation.
0: What can I say? The film's got some good images.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think is fitting for the subject matter, right? Like part of the there's obviously very straightforward and rational things you can say about why the nuclear bomb is terrifying and bad, but there's also a deeper level of just like pure terror. Yeah, I mean it's like it's religious, which is yeah.
0: where a lot of the music's coming from.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, the awe and the terror of that can't be fully explained by like rational thought, which is what the movie's tapping into, I think.
0: And it tapped into the audience's desires both for that and for cool motorbikes, which is <laughs> the two ways in which this film was extremely influential on numerous films in Japan and also in the US, including like The Matrix. Uh, more recently, Stranger Things, Kanye West, The Movie Chronicle. There is a very long list. If you feel like googling Akira influences, you can scroll away to your heart's content. But um, this film did become like a big cult hit. I was kind of interested to like look up what the release was like. You know, when it came out in '88 in Japan, and then like in the US. It seems like this film was like a bigger hit in the UK because like apparently it made about a million dollars in the US. And then it made the equivalent of a million dollars in the UK in 1991, like a couple of years later, and was like in the top 10 list of films in the UK for like several weeks. (laughs) So I guess part of that would have been like, you know, word of mouth and like anime audiences were like skyrocketing at that point. But like this film really, really made an impact.
1: Well, I read the New York Times review from when it was first released here and It was, you know, Jan Aslan wrote it. Very, very glowing review. And she's like, there's this new incredible animated movie playing at Film Forum, which is like, I mean, I love Film Forum. but It's It's on at one cinema. (laughs) It's tiny. And that's where little indie foreign films go, right? So this would have been presented in New York City anyway, which is obviously the only information that I have, as an art movie from... Japan that like Cinephiles should go see.
0: Which it kind of is, but at the same time, it's clearly, you know, also very
1: accessible. <laughs> well, I mean, it obviously again became like this huge cult thing and has had all this influence, as you say, but I mean, it's for grown ups, right? Yeah. I mean like teenagers obviously could watch it, but it's not for children.
0: Yeah, it's not pg rated. <laughs>
1: yeah, and animation is considered a children's medium or like a medium for kids in America, right? So it kind of makes sense that it wouldn't have become like a...
0: Yeah, I mean, there's kind of, there's like anecdotes about Steven Spielberg being like, no one's ever going to watch this film, like it's unmarketable.
1: And it's weird. It's a weird movie. And it's very disturbing. So it's kind of amazing to me that it became as much of a thing as it did, in spite of the elements that we keep talking about that are very accessible. Like the bike chases, and like the bike, he literally says in one of the interviews, "Like, yeah, we designed the bikes to look like the bikes from Tron, which was pretty big in America." (laughs) So, yeah,
0: it's like there's a lot of cross-pollination. It's also kind of arriving at the tail end of the '80s when it was like the first really big wave of like American obsession with Japanese culture through like an extremely uninformed and often like quite offensive lens. But it's like that sort of set the scene for this big wave of anime interest in like the early 90s. That began with this, because like, as you said, it's like, oh, actually, you can have animated media for adults and it can be incredibly visually interesting.
1: Yeah. And there was also like Japan had this huge like economic boom. Mm -hmm. And one of the retrospective pieces was talking about the sense in the West of this fear of the ascendant economic power, right, which is now a lot of the and it's like around central China.
0: to eighties and nineties cyberpunk because if you watch like American cyberpunk, it's like, wow, this is—you've certainly got some neuroses around ill-informed ideas of what it's like to live in either Tokyo or Hong Kong. Right.
1: And this movie is not really engaged with that, and is way more about like, no. I mean, the one sort of big sort of political theme that we haven't really touched on is that this is obviously also very much a commentary on what happened in Japan during the war, not just like the nuclear stuff, but in terms of like the Japanese government and regime, like leading into the war. And then during the war, right. In terms of like these authoritarian figures treating young people badly. And that I imagine would not have been as much of a like accessible allegory to American audiences. But like, even the studio Ghibli stuff doesn't come out with a dub for like quite a while after this it took forever for those movies to come out in america mm-hmm. but i did love the idea of it playing at film forum and people like flocking to go see i mean rightly so but it's not something that i would envision myself going to now based on their current programming but uh yeah i mean i was really pleased to have seen it because it was always something that i kind of vaguely knew about and that like knew i should see cuz it was influential but
0: and now you can spend the rest of your life seeing that motorbike slide appear in yeah. dozens of other films <laughs>
1: Yes, yes, indeed. And just the idea of all these things, like, cross-pollinating and influencing each other is very cool, even if sometimes it's done in a kind of, like, cheesy way. Because, to me, this movie doesn't feel, like, particularly, like, Western, even though there are these big influences that we've talked about. But it, again, like, this stuff has influenced that, and then this movie has obviously influenced so many films in other countries. So, yeah, I'm really happy to have finally seen it. Even if I did find it distressing. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to watch the dub because that was the only thing that was available to rent. So that was not an ideal situation, but still
0: worth it. I think if you if it. you get um, a tester account for Funimation, you can watch it on Funimation with subtitles.
1: Well, that's a tip for all of our listeners that I did not have. So yeah, watch Kira. Great movie. Yeah, Timely, given the Olympics... <laughs> And next week, do you want to share what we will be discussing? Since you've Yeah, it, I'm excited
0: for next week's episode, which I would categorize as a high risk, high reward film choice for me. Because <laughs> I cannot guess whether Morgan's going to like it or not. It's a film called The Empty Man, which is a horror movie that came out last year. And it basically sank without trace. It was a financial failure and it got pretty bad reviews. And then kind of over the next year... Critics started picking up on it and being like, actually, this film is an undiscovered gem. And while a lot of movies do get described as cult films inaccurately, I would say that this is very rapidly gaining a cult status. I watched it last week. It was like, this is absolutely terrifying. (laughs) And um, I'm interested to see whether Morgan likes it or not. Because if you do Google the reviews, like Rotten Tomatoes is like 60%, this film's shit. And like the initial trailer really misrepresents what the film's about like it was, it's based on a graphic novel and the trailer is like here's a movie that's kind of in the general gist of bloody mary like a bunch of teenagers do like a silly ritual to bring a monster called the empty man and then he gets them and that's like 10 percent of the film <laughs> it's this very disturbing and like unusually long for a horror movie film it's like over two hours and it kind of just brings all these different ideas including like asmr and intrusive thoughts you know, just a lot going on there to create a film that kind of draws from a lot of popular horror tropes while also feeling very original and extremely effectively scary.
1: I mean, the critics I've seen talk about this movie were all people who had totally not heard about it at all, and then watched it in the past couple. Yeah, of months and I think were like, rel- this it was great. like one of
0: these things where relatively few people were reviewing it in the first place because, like, it doesn't star famous people, and it like was dumped by its studio so it wasn't getting like a bunch of press screenings and then like the more serious critics kind of picked it up later and was like oh actually this is incredible
1: <laughs> yeah it was a definitely a pandemic casualty studio just decided you know what we're not going to spend anybody marketing this does star james Badgedale, whom i love so i'm looking forward to his performance i feel like i'm going to like it but maybe i won't and we'll find out next week so you can tune in for that if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online?
0: You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the scenes.
1: And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at M. L. Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.